Let's talk a little more this morning about those so-called health freedom protests from a couple of days ago. If you heard any of it, then you also heard some of the people very enthusiastically voicing their displeasure towards the media. Now, I've been in this business a long time. Criticizing the media goes with the territory. It happens. And in some fashion, it has kind of always been that way. But honestly, this seemed more intense. It, definitely, it seemed different. So how has trust in media and other institutions eroded so much that people are willing to do that and cause disruptions in front of hospitals? I mean, how has this happened? Is this the result of people relying on social media for all of their news? Well, to talk more about this, we're joined now by Matthew Johnson, who's Director of Education at Media Smart. He's a digital literacy expert. Matthew, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. I tell you, this last year or so must make your job very interesting. <laughs> it absolutely does. It's always been an interesting uh, line of work, but certainly it's it's never been more urgent than in the last couple of years. So what do you think has happened in the last couple of years? Well, there have been a couple of things that have really changed. And it's, you know, it's important to point out that, in fact, the overall trust in media um, has not changed that much in Canada. And there's some evidence that it's actually risen. Um, but what we are seeing is uh, the ability of a relatively small number of voices to be perceived as much larger than they really are. Um, this is what's called the majority illusion, and it's particularly powerful online, where often we don't really know. We don't have a sense of how many people are in an online space, and so it becomes very easy for the loudest voices uh, to seem like the majority. And that's exactly what's happened here, whether we're talking about um, you know, mistrust in media, whether we're talking about uh, conspiracy theories or... Um, vaccine uh, misinformation, what we have fairly consistently is about 10% of the population uh, that because it's able to get the word out in a way that it didn't have, because it brings more uh, more passion and commitment to the online conversation, because they're able to draw connections through social media and other digital platforms, it's able to seem like a much larger uh, group uh, than it actually is. Right. Has it always been that way then? So has that group always been there, but as you say, it's now just being magnified? To a certain extent. Um, I, definitely there are people who are being drawn in that were not drawn in before. Um, and partly that is due, we think, to the uh, the pandemic. Um, in a way, because anytime things are more out of our control, every time, anytime we feel that the world is kind of chaotic, we instinctively turn to uh, simpler explanations. Um, and also, quite simply, the pandemic has left a lot of people uh, with time on their hands, um, because a lot of the activities that we used to do uh, are no longer available to us or have not been available to us at various times over the last two years. And uh, there's a lot of research that shows that uh, that boredom um, is linked to everything from conspiracy theories to uh, engaging in online harassment. And of course, simply spending more time online, consuming more information online, if you don't really know how to do it effectively, 
is going to expose you to a lot more misinformation, especially if you are just allowing the news to come to you via social media. Right. And it's, people just, they look for answers, right? In times of uncertainty, they look for answers, something to explain to them what is going on. And it's not always the, I guess they're not, they're not always getting the information that they probably should be getting about those questions. Absolutely. And once again, it, it is the issue that um, people who are opposed to the scientific consensus, people who are opposed to uh, media or to government, they typically do bring more, uh, they bring more enthusiasm. Um, and sometimes they, there is no one even telling the opposite story. So for a long time, there was nobody on YouTube who was saying, you know, vaccines are safe and effective and there's a process for making sure that they're safe because that was assumed in the same way that there was no one who was bothering to say, yeah, you know, the earth is round. And so in, in real ways, the ground was ceded to the anti-vaxxers and to the flat earth people because they were the ones going on YouTube. That's what's called a data void. And uh, the organized misinformation spreaders, um, you know, the, the extreme anti-vaxxers, the hate groups, the far right movements, uh, they take advantage of these. They encourage people to do some research, and they give them, the, they don't just say do some research, they say look up this phrase, because they know that at a certain point this phrase on Google or on YouTube is going to turn up uh, the information that they've seeded. Right. Oh, boy, that really makes it, that makes it so much deeper than you realize. It's not just people trying to make links, it's people actively promoting links and putting the links there. Absolutely. And one of the things that we have seen in the last 10 years or so is, uh, to a certain extent, a merger between these groups that spread disinformation. That if you go back about 10 years, you would find that the anti-vaxxers and the far right and various other groups like that um, were distinct online. They were separate networks. And now, to a large extent, it really is all one. Um, and there's a lot of evidence. You know, there was research that was done recently with conspiracy theorists, and what they found was that there was not a single person they interviewed who only believed one of the conspiracy theories that they asked about. So every one, every one of these conspiracy theories, every one of these networks is a gateway to another one, and they make use of one another. Um, and we've seen that very strongly, that the far right has made heavy use of COVID right. uh, misinformation as a way of getting its own message and across. Then, and then people feel like they're part of an exclusive club, right? And people like to feel like they belong. And if you feel like you're in on something, that is very powerful. Absolutely. And of course, the really dangerous thing is that in many cases, they think what they're doing is critical thinking, because they're, they're asking questions, they're challenging the consensus, they're doing research. They don't necessarily realize that all of this is, as they say, being managed, that they're only looking up phrases um, or terms that have been fed to them, that they're asking questions, but they're asking questions that, again, have been fed to them. And they're looking for things when they've already decided uh, what the answer is in mind. And that's why one of the biggest, one of the most important parts of media literacy is actually intellectual humility. It's accepting the idea that you may not be right and that your first instinct may not be right. And so we always, every single one of us, we're all vulnerable to misinformation. We always have to start, whenever we encounter something, we always have to start by thinking, first of all, what do I already believe about this? Why do I want to believe it or to debunk it? And what information would actually make me change my mind? Because if there isn't something that would make you change your mind, you're not doing critical thinking. Hmm, that's a good point. Matthew, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Well, thanks for having me. 
Well, the death toll seems to keep going up in light of the impact of that storm, Ida, that made its way through New York and Philadelphia, parts of New Jersey, just a couple of days ago. Just those pictures, I'm sure you've seen them, of the flooding that happened in New York City alone. It's shocking. Uh, Let's talk more about the recovery from this. Reggie Cicchini joins us now, our Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. So how? what's the situation like in New York City? I mean, the pictures of the flooding and the transit system being shut down, what has happened? Yeah, so look, New York City received uh, more rain than it would see in the entire month of September uh, in a matter of hours uh, between Wednesday and Thursday, and it really brought the city that never sleeps to a complete standstill. We saw those images of the subway system uh, with trains running through kind of torrents of water. We saw waterlogged streets, not only in Manhattan, but throughout the boroughs and in towards uh, the suburbs through Westchester County. This really became problematic uh, for the city. They're trying to work through uh, the damages, the less- left behind uh, after that water started to recede out of there. But it's not just uh, New York that's dealing with this. Through New Jersey, they saw flooding. We're in Philadelphia right now. I can still see uh, a, a trenched expressway out of my window uh, still sitting under eight and a half feet of water. So this is a problem. While Ida might be gone, the remnants of Ida are still long behind. I have to say, I'm also horrified by some of the stories that I read about people trapped in their basement apartments. Yeah, and look, this is, uh, we heard Mayor Bill de Blasio speak about this yesterday, the president uh, as well, saying that there is no longer uh, a time to kind of think of climate change as something that's coming in the future. This is happening now. Uh, and buildings, landlords, uh, uh, cities, they need to start better preparing themselves because unfortunately, you're right, like we saw in New York, many of the people who died uh, were in basement apartments. These are oftentimes the more vulnerable populations uh, simply living in those basement units because they're more affordable. And here they are not able to get out simply because the exits were not approachable with that much water in there. That is why we've seen such a high death toll uh, in New York. We've seen more than 50 deaths across the Northeast. That's more deaths than when Ida came on shore in Louisiana as a Category 4. Oh, that is shockingly high number. So you're in Philadelphia then. Can you give me an idea? Like you said, it's still pretty flooded there. What is the cleanup like? What's going to happen the next few days? Yeah, so look, there are parts of the city where the water has receded. When we were out last night, we saw the water recede back about six or seven feet towards uh, an incredibly still high river that kind of cuts through the city. But this trenched expressway, uh, the, the pumping systems failed as the water was falling. So it is still impassable. You cannot move. The water is almost uh, kind of towards street level, 14 feet up from where the expressway sits. The water, as it moves out, is leaving behind that slurry of mud and damage and destruction. This is going to take days, if not weeks, to try and clean up just this part of Philadelphia. The northwest suburbs, which were hit harder than this, they are still trying to clean up. New Jersey, which had seven tornadoes touched down, it is trying to clean up uh, as well. This is going to be an all-hands-on-deck situation for weeks, which is why the president uh, released FEMA to come into all these states to try and help out. Did you say seven tornadoes just touched down in New Jersey? That seems excessive. It, it does seem excessive. Seven uh, confirmed tornadoes. One of them said to be an EF2 or EF3 blowing apart uh, several parts uh, of a community, uh, Mullicle Hill, New Jersey. So this is why we heard the president say that climate change is now one of the greatest threats uh, of our lifetime, because... This was a Category 4 storm that touched down in the Gulf of Mexico, and 2,100 kilometers away, that storm kept enough strength to flood out four or five different states, drop down uh, seven tornadoes, and really create havoc for tens of millions of people on the other end of the country. Terrible stuff. All right, Reggie, thank you very much for your time on that this morning. 
Thank you. Let's talk about that briefing that happened yesterday. I was surprised. Like, I, I didn't think we were going to yeah. have one yesterday. Then all of a sudden, there's one going on. Gee, was it just two months ago we were told these things were over, that, you know, we're restart is here and uh, everything's fine and we got this thing under control and we don't even need to have regular briefings. Instead, we got uh, Adrian Dix and Dr. Henry short notice briefing yesterday. Uh, I think a lot of us went, well, this can't be good news. And it wasn't um, an explosion of cases now in northern British Columbia. Health Minister Adrian Dix saying very significant pressure on the healthcare system. A fairly sobering briefing with uh, Dix and Dr. Bonnie Henry and new restrictions in the north. Um, we were supposed to be entering phase four of the restart program next week. Instead, uh, they're scrambling to get on top of this thing. I always find, too, that with these briefings, especially when they're unexpected, it means that we should brace ourselves. Yeah, because if yeah. they're having this, it means that they're seeing something that we yeah. have not yet, the numbers have not yet been released. Yeah, and this is about, um, you know, the first thing is, uh, you, know, you can recriminate all you want about it, but the fact is the Delta variant is much more transmissible. Dr. Henry said the other day, it, it takes a smaller dose to to give you COVID-19. Uh, yes, uh, we don't have enough people vaccinated um, to really get on top of the thing. Uh, it's going to take a lot more than we have, although vaccinations are up. Um, the one thing we did hear about Northern BC yesterday that was encouraging is that since they started ringing the alarm bells last month, um, there's been a big jump in vaccinations in the North. And, and that's good news. I mean, I think that's still the the way out of this. Um, you know, Adrian Dix uh, used the number again yesterday uh, once you once you analyze the numbers, you're what thirty four times more likely to end up in hospital with COVID nineteen if you're not vaccinated than if you are vaccinated. That's a a powerful number and uh, one that everybody should memorize. Um, the other thing that really jumped out at me yesterday, though, Simi, was was they. I think one of the things they wanted to do was to respond to these calls from particularly some leaders in the north for the government to hold off on the vaccine cards, the the requirement to be able to show that you're vaccinated mm -hmm. to get into some businesses. They, they rejected that out of hand. And in fact, Dr. Henry, in one of her more powerful explanations we've heard lately was, look, you know, we bring in what we think is necessary to protect people, but also, first of all, to protect the healthcare system. So we're bringing in requirements because what we've discovered is the vaccine is spreading through public indoor gatherings. When they trace the contacts, where did you get it? That's one of the first things that crop up. So we've got you're going to be restricted in your ability to take part in public indoor gatherings. Um, if you don't have a vaccination card, if you can't prove you're vaccinated. So that was interesting. Um, we also discovered yesterday, we always discover things in these. Uh, it's in the news now today. The uh, registration procedures for getting your phone ready or your paper record that you're vaccinated, uh, that's coming on Tuesday. 
It's not a rush job, Simi. The, the, the cards are supposed to be in use uh, September the 13th, so you right. get the procedures on Tuesday right after Labor Day. Um, you're not going to have much time to get up and get registered if you don't have it already. That makes me feel like what they really wanted out of this exercise was for people to get vaccinated. Right. Yeah. In anticipation yeah. of this thinking that, OK, yeah. now I'm I think that's what it really was. It was a carrot. Yeah. No, I think that's true. And, uh, you know, I, <laughs> you say carrot. I say carrot. Some people see it as a stick. Um, I guess it could be taken as both. Uh, Dix emphasized that yesterday. He said, you know, this is about you being able to do stuff. You're going to get this card so you can enter businesses, go to restaurants, do, uh, you know, go to hockey games, go to concerts, right? That, that's the incentive uh, for you. But, you know, I guess the flip side of, of some of the people that are opposed to the passports or the cards, whatever you call them, is, no, no, they're trying to use coercion, right? They're trying to take away your rights and your freedom and your access. As I said, I'm on the carrot side on it, but I guess it's also a stick. Yeah. Uh, Let's talk a bit about what's going on on the federal election front, too, because I saw this Andrew Weaver video yesterday, um, and I thought, is Andrew Weaver even with the Green Party anymore? Uh, Not really. Yeah. Uh, You know, this time last year, he bailed on the B.C. Green Party, endorsed John Horgan for re-election, um, and, you know, I mean, I think Horgan was destined to be reelected anyway, and I think Horgan's own polling told him that. But uh, Weaver was out there saying, you know, he's the guy who should be our next premier or, or our continuing premier. And it was it angered some provincial Greens who felt that, you know, Weaver had betrayed the provincial party. But anyway, he did what he did. Um, he'd been relatively quiet since then, although once in a while he weighs in on something back at the university, back teaching. But, uh, yeah, he says he endorses uh, Justin Trudeau, the federal Liberal Party, because they have what Weaver regards as the only plausible plan to fight climate change. Um, and Weaver took a shot at the federal Green Party, which is a separate party from the B.C. Greens, but he took a shot at them uh, for their infighting. Well, the infighting isn't news, I guess, but uh, I know there are some B.C. Greens who were supporters of Sonia Furstenau who might say that Andrew Weaver should talk about infighting. He fueled enough of it in the B.C. Green Party. I was wondering about that, yeah. Big news, though, in this sense, because the New Democrats are targeting um, one of the green-held seats here in B.C., the one up in Nanaimo. Just Jagmeet Singh has been in there a couple of times campaigning already. Paul Manley is the, uh, is the MP and other New Democrats. It, it's funny, uh, Weaver's endorsement of the federal liberals may actually help the, the federal New Democrats win that seat because I think if the, sweet, the seat is going to switch, it's more likely to switch to the NDP than to the federal liberals. That's an interesting one, right? And right now, I mean, the Greens don't seem like they gained any traction at all in this election. No, I mean, their internal troubles are, are oh, yeah. well documented. I know you've had federal uh, analysts on, David Aiken and others, saying that, you know, the new federal leader spending all of her time trying to win her seat in Toronto and the odds aren't great. Um, I was out for a road trip uh, last week and we went through... Uh, Elizabeth May's riding. Uh, she's got signs everywhere. Um, I don't think anybody expects her to lose her seat to anyone. Uh, May, May's a fascinating character, right? Her, her launch press conference, she's on a walker because she's had replacement surgery for her hip. 
Um, but I was thinking, looking at the signs, I was thinking, you know, May is kind of already a, a political heritage site as much as an MP. Um, I think she's going to be okay. But uh, yeah, the, the Greens are worried about what's going to happen to their seat in Nanaimo. Interesting. All right. More to come. Thanks, Vaughn. Bye-bye, Sim. Well, summer is coming to a close. It's been a rough one weather-wise, and of course, with the case numbers of COVID-19 going up and down. But now what we're focused on is the fact that kids, teachers, back in classrooms next week for another school year with the cloud of COVID-19 hanging overhead. There are still a lot of concerns that are being voiced, you know, by teachers, by school staff, by parents, too, about safety. So we thought, let's break it down now with the help of Jennifer Whiteside, who's BC's education minister. Thank you for joining us this morning. Good morning, Simi. What do you want, you know, teachers and parents and students to know about school next week? Well, first, let me say that I know that uh, our whole education system has come through such such an incredibly challenging year last year. And really, it, uh, it was remarkable to see all of our frontline educators and staff and district and school leadership and trustees, parents, everybody working so hard together uh, to make the to, to make sure that kids could be in school uh, last year and and could make it through the year. And this year, I, I think we're, we're going certainly into uh, into the school year with, uh, you know, some anxiety about what the what the continuing uh, pandemic looks like. But really, there is always that sense in September of of renewal, of excitement about kids getting back to school and seeing their friends and their teachers. And I think it's important to, to try to hang on to some of that as we, as we go back in. We've been working very hard across the system all summer long to make sure that we have good, safe, solid safety plans in place um, mm-hmm. so, that, uh, so that it will be a safe and successful return. Do you think, like, is there flexibility in those plans, Minister? So if something does kind of go sideways, will there be response to it quickly? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, uh, you know, we, we kept really the, the, the essential foundation and framework of our, of our plan from last year. And what is, uh, you know, different, uh, this year, particularly as we, you know, see how the, the pandemic is unfolding is that we know that there are very, uh, there are big differences across communities. Um, with respect to in, to vaccination rates, for example. So uh, we want to uh, be in a situation where we uh, can respond quickly on the ground. Uh, local medical health, health officers and the health authorities will be working very closely with school districts, I mean, as they always do, uh, but particularly uh, to track uh, where we may be seeing uh, rates of communi- community transmission that may, might be impacting schools, and they'll be responding to that locally. So for example, right now we have a, a different set of uh, more restrictive set of uh, of, um, of restrictions in place in the Interior Health Authority, where we know we we're still doing uh, have, have work to do around uh, around vaccination rates. Yeah, are you concerned about that though? About the fact that there are you know obviously children who can't be vaccinated, and that we don't have a mechanism for knowing who is vaccinated and who is not for the people who are going to be spending time in our schools. Yeah, I mean, of of course, I can appreciate that uh, that I mean, parents were all. Uh, we all want to make sure that uh, that kids and staff are supported in uh, in in schools this year, and so we uh, we will be uh, maintaining the on the ground supports that we had uh, that we funded out of out of our federal COVID funding last year. These rapid response teams that were a combination of health authority staff and district staff who were really working together uh, to support um, schools and and districts. 
uh, with their safety plans, with communication, to make sure that we're that we're very responsive. I, I want to say that too that I, I have been uh, so grateful for. Uh, the, uh, the the incredible support across uh, our system and across all of our partners around uh, around the vaccination the vaccination message and certainly we, we've heard from teachers that uh, um, that that they, uh, they 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 report very high pickup amongst their amongst their membership uh, uh, when it comes to vaccinations and of course we saw in Surrey uh, we have evidence of this and experience of this uh, that in Surrey. Uh, last spring, when vaccination became available for school-based staff in Surrey as part of our response to what was happening in that community um, uh, during the third wave, uh, we saw incredibly high rates of, of, of uptake on, on vaccines, and we saw that reflected in what was happening in schools. We saw exposure notifications drop right off, cases showing up in schools drop, dropping off. So that is really, um, we, we know that it works. We know that vaccine vaccination is the most important thing that folks could be doing right now. And I will say that if anybody out there listening has not yet had your vaccination, please, please make your appointment, register, get vaccinated. That is the most important way that we can protect kids and protect our communities and schools this year. Can you understand the frustration, though, Minister, when if you want to go to a restaurant, you're going to need to show proof of vaccination, but you can still spend all day in a classroom and not have to do that? Yeah, and I, what, what I understand the the the, the way that, that the public health is thinking about this is that we we want to be ensuring that those activities that are absolutely essential, and we know that kids being in school is absolutely essential. Essential. We learned that last year the the critical importance of kids having access to in in class full-time in-class learning for not just for the learning, but for all of the supports that come with school, the meal programs, the mental health supports. There were, there were, there were impacts on kids when they didn't have access um, to, to in-class learning last, last spring. So we know that that is a number one, a number one priority. And those activities in, uh, in society that are, uh, that are not essential um, are the are the kind are the activities where uh, where there will be where, where there will be the most restrictions in schools? We want to really be focusing about making sure that we're supporting our safety plans, that we're working on the the, the vaccine um, strategy that uh, that public health is uh, is continuing to roll out and and will be continuing to target um, over the over the coming weeks. And that really is uh, is our focus about making sure we have high uptake in vaccines in those communities. How do you feel about the notification aspect of this then? Uh, you know, I think parents would feel better getting more information, not less. I know, and I and I... I understand that, um, that that there is a delicate balance here between um, what is enough information and what is too much information, and what what information uh, is uh, when information becomes not not so helpful anymore. And I know that there is um, uh, that public health is absolutely will be notifying uh, uh, families uh, where their where a child has been exposed, where there's a close contact. That 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 um, that that process absolutely is still in place. So parents should not be should not worry about that. Uh, they will absolutely be notified if there is an exposure, if their child is exposed in uh, in, in a school. And we we heard Dr. Henry earlier in in, in the week speak to the uh, contract contact tracing process, which is continuing in place, which uh, uh, which will continue to happen uh, when when cases are identified. All right. Well, hopefully we'll keep in touch and we'll see how this goes. Thank you very much for your time. Good luck, everybody, next week. Thanks so much. Thank you. 
Well, four of our party leaders here in Canada squared off in French for the first televised debate of the federal election campaign. Oh, lots of topics that they covered. COVID-19 pandemic, of course, vaccinations. That definitely took centre stage. But let's uh, talk about how it went. Did you have a chance to watch it? And if you did, what did you think? wondering if it swayed anyone's vote at this point. Let me know where you're sitting at in this federal election campaign. We're about halfway through. Have you decided who you're going to vote for? Simi at CKN w.com if you're waiting for the english language debate that is next week there's one of each next week on september the 8th and 9th one in french then one in english so maybe you're waiting for that let's talk about how last night went joining us now is david mosscrop author of too dumb for democracy columnist and political science uh, scientist with the university of ottawa david hi good morning what did you think about that debate last night well uh debates sometimes don't matter at all sometimes they matter quite a bit This time, I suspect there's a pretty decent chance it matters. Uh, They mattered in Quebec in 2019, 2015, and I think they will again. I suspect uh, it'll take a few days to get a sense of what people really believe. You know, we all try to sort it out the next day, but the fact is it takes a little bit of time. But my initial sense was everybody did fairly well. Nobody came out particularly behind everyone else. Unsurprisingly, Justin Trudeau and Yves, uh, Yves-François Blanchet did particularly well. They're much more comfortable in French than Jagmeet Singh and Erin O'Toole. Um, and it was a pretty good debate. The, the French debates, for reasons we can get into, it, uh, tend to be better than the English debates. And I yeah. think that, we, that was borne out last night. Why is that, do you think? Well, I'm hypothesizing here uh, based on, on things I've seen other people say and some thoughts of my own. But I suspect it's a mix of... Uh, not being able to insult people in your second language quite as well as you can in your first. (laughs) That's an interesting theory, David. Yeah. Yeah. People have to behave. I mean, I, you know, I saw someone on Twitter say yesterday, look, I mean, in your second language, you have to be direct and you can't be insulting. And I think that probably goes a long way, actually. Uh, They also tend to be particularly well moderated and, uh, you know, in fact, you couldn't even notice the moderator last night. Uh, he sort of just sort of melted into the background because everyone was behaving themselves. You know what? You're and right about that, though. Good. You're right about that because I noticed there was a lot less of um, talking all over each other, which mm-hmm. we get a lot of in the English language debates. That drives me crazy. Same. And you'll notice, by the way, that occasionally you could hear a sort of faint voice in the background struggling to break through. It's because they cut the mics when the, when the when one leader was speaking. The rest of them didn't have a live mic if they weren't uh, in the Why frame. can't we do that? Like, why it's can't a great we? idea. Yes. I think we should cut their mics most of the time. It would make for a much better debate. Yeah, I like that. Oh, I like your theory, too. That's an interesting one. Did you think anybody landed a knockout punch, though? I don't particularly believe in them in the sense that, uh, you know, we always look for them and sometimes we find them, but I, I don't think they're particularly common. Occasionally something will stand out and we'll remember it years and years later, right? You think of um, the Mulroney debate with Turner, you had an yeah. option, sir. Um, but, but most of the time we don't really see that. And, and I suspect there were a couple of moments that, that will resonate. For instance, when Jagmeet Singh pushed back against Blanchette, who was basically trying to explain racism to Jagmeet oh. I could not uh, thing, believe that part. It was extraordinarily frustrating to watch. I, I can't imagine. I mean, but Singh pushed back, I think, quite uh, quite forcefully and rightfully and basically said, you know, come on, man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, you know, and, and so I, I do think that moment will have resonated with a lot of folks, uh, especially those who would be inclined to uh, have had more of an experience like Jagmeet Singh than even François Blanchette. Uh, so I think that had a moment. Uh, you know, Justin Trudeau pushed back 
uh, on climate as well, and I think uh, seemed animated and engaged and a lot more, far less ashen, a lot more uh, dynamic than he has previously. And I think there'll be a couple of moments of trio that will resonate. But uh, beyond that, not a, not a ton stands out. It just sort of plodded along more or less productively for two hours. Yeah, it did. And do you think they covered, clearly this was also very Quebec-centric, right? Like you're not you're not going to see uh, particular provinces get a whole lot of attention, even though they were asking about whether or not a like, vaccine plant should be built in Quebec. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah as, as people will tell you, the, the Quebec debate, uh, the, uh, the French language debate in general, but especially the TVA debate, are parochial. And, you know, they talked about, the, as you mentioned, the Moderna factory. They talked about, and this is, this is true. It's, this sounds like satire, but it's true. They spent more time talking about the third link tunnel in Quebec City yeah. than they did about Indigenous peoples, right? So it gives you a sense of just how parochial these things can be, even though they do talk about national issues, too. Uh, and, of course, everybody then panders to Quebec. Uh, yeah, that was that. that was the disappointing part for me where I thought, oh, is every province going to get a debate where we talk about the issues of that particular no. province? No, and, and, you know, would that, we could have, you know, my, my, my feeling is if we're going to do debates, we should actually do a half dozen of them at least. We should have lots of debates and we should have regional debates and we should have issue debates as well. Um, I, I don't blame French speakers both in the province of Quebec and outside of it. Well, you know, there's a lot of French speakers outside of Quebec wanting a French language. Oh, debate absolutely. Yeah. Talk about it, but like, come on. The rest <laughs> of us. I'd like uh, a BC being, debate. Yeah. Well, because, you know, if, if we're going to talk about my, my watch once in on the debate, if, if we're talking about a tunnel or bridge in Quebec, well, why aren't we talking about a tunnel or bridge in British Columbia. They have concerns about tunnels and bridges in British Columbia. My God, British Columbia is one big concern about um, tunnels and bridges, yeah. right? Um, and so why not there too, right? And it's a function, I think, both of two things. One, three things, actually. There is a linguistic minority in protected in Quebec, and it's important to speak to those folks, to, and outside of it. Two, Quebec is a big province with a lot of seats, right? And yeah. uh, so the parties are incentivized to do it. Uh, and three, the networks there are very good at making sure they get theirs. And the English language networks across the rest of the country don't seem to be quite as good at that. Yeah, that is all very true there. Now, I know there's a lot of pressure, I think, on the block leader heading into this. How do you think he did? I think quite well. I mean, I suspect uh, it's, it's hard to say who wins and loses the debate because, it, again, it takes time. Point one and point two is it depends, right? Aaron O'Toole's goals last night were different than Jagmeet Singh's and different than Blanchette's and different than Trudeau's, right? Um, for Blanchette, um, he was expected to do well because home province, first language, by far the best in French, and, uh, and I think he did. I, I suspect he probably came out, you know, at least first, second, uh, in terms of either holding on to voters or maybe even converting a couple. So, if, you know, that, if that's but, the measure, I think yeah. he did pretty well. But that matters. That's the other thing I was going to point out to people is like, you may wonder, well, why would we care about how he does? It matters here in BC, because oh, yeah. if he doesn't do well there, that would mean another party is going to do well there. And that impacts what happens to us. Hugely. Exactly right. I mean, uh, British Columbia is, is is the most competitive electoral province in the country. Exactly. Look at this; it's a three way race. Uh, Quebec is is also pretty competitive, uh, but again, when you when you jam them all together, it it's one big country with 338 ridings, not jurisdictions. So it does matter. And for the Liberals, it matters a great deal because they're they're holding on to government or extending it to a majority government is premised on performing well in Quebec. 
If that falls apart, they're in big, big trouble, right? And so, you know, BC has a couple of swing ridings. Uh, you know, there's probably half a dozen real close races in BC. Uh, close race in Quebec could mean that those close races in BC could make a big difference. Oh, that's what we wait for. Well, thanks for the analysis this morning, <laughs> David. My pleasure, always. We know that it sounds like Tuesday is the day we are going to be getting more information about our vaccine passport system, as in how do you register for it? How do you make sure you're signed up for it? What's that process going to be like? That's coming Tuesday. Of course, keep it tuned in right here. We will have all of that for you. But as we get ready for that, there are still so many questions about it, right? The types of challenges that businesses and officials could run into in terms of enforcement. Do we expect police to step in every time somebody doesn't want to show their vaccine passport. Well, it's going to make it very challenging for police. Joining us now is Rob Ferrer, Pacific Regional Director of the National Police Federation. Rob, thank you for being here. No problem. Thanks, Amy. So this is happening right across the country in different provinces. What kind of challenges uh, is this kind of posing for police departments? Well, I, I think there's more questions than answers on that, really. I think when the Premier made his first comments um, in Logan Lake that people with disputes at businesses they just call the police um it felt a little bit like groundhog's day with the the comment about the audits for the traveling public when they did the the you know where where we have a comment made and and hopefully not expectation set because you know there's a whole lot of businesses in this province and i don't think well i i I know the police aren't in a position to respond to check uh status of vaccine passports at every business in the province so so I think right now we just have more questions uh, than we do answers on this. Right. Even though the last year, would you say that police have definitely been more involved? Like if there is a confrontation, if there is a problem, that's what police are responding to. Absolutely. And and that's not going to change. Right. So so if you're, you know, at a, at a business and we we don't want the message to be that the police are pushing back on attending to assist where police are necessary. Absolutely not. If, if there's a threat of violence or or, you know, people feel unsafe. Of course, that's that's the role of the police. But, you know, the question is, is more around the passport enforcement aspect. That is right. You know, there's a there's a, there needs to be more consultation, both with police, with bylaws, public health. What does that look like? Because we're obviously going into a, a new era and there's discussions about what role we want police to take in these type of actions. So would you say that if that is the role, so if the role is expected to be, listen, this person won't show their their vaccine passport and they're causing a scene, that is when police are okay stepping in? Well, the causing a scene piece, uh, I would say for sure, they're not showing it. You know, that's, again, you know, we have to prioritize. We, we uh, you know, just in, in rough numbers, the RCMP has 20,000 or so officers and every year we lose about 850 to retirements and whatnot, which is which is standard. So we all get trained out of depot. Uh, and with COVID, depot essentially got shut down. So we only graduated 380 last year. So we actually have fewer officers than we did last year at this time and increased demands. And w- with fires still ongoing, we've had, you know, 600 and some odd deployments to fires. We have Ferry Creek, hundreds of deployments to that. So we have just, you know, in addition to additional mental health calls, and the stress that, that, frankly, the officers, just like everybody else in Canada, are under, um, the expectations are higher and higher and the demands are higher and higher. So we, we have to be cautious about what we, what we can say that the police will be able to respond to because there's no shortage of work. Um, no officers that I know of are sitting around waiting for, for things to do. Everybody's, right. you know, 
obviously fully tasked. So uh, given that, what you just described there, does that mean that more officers are being trained now? Like, are they trying to make up for those numbers? Well, it's one of the asks we've, we've asked. And of course, you know, the RCMP has a, 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 a different sort of funding model. Some of it is federal, provincial, and municipal. Uh, but we've asked the federal government, which of course right now, you know, there's, we don't know who it's going to be, but we've asked for additional funding for depot because we need to train, you know, um, at least 1,200. We need 1,200 out of depot. And so we've asked for, for some more money to get that ramped up so that we can get those numbers up everywhere. Resources are absolutely an issue everywhere in all our jurisdictions. Um, so we have asked for additional funding. And I know yesterday, you know, our president, Brian Sovey, was meeting with the, I believe it was the governance and finance committee with the provincial government uh, also asking for additional funding because, you know, even without these these asks were we need that additional right. funding just to make sure that we maintain so what you're concerned about then is if these if this vaccine passport system is in areas where it's an rcmp detachment and more calls start coming in to help police this thing that there's just it's going to be an overload well something you know you can only attend so many so many calls and you have to prioritize those so we have a, a you know a, a well-defined priority system um you know, and, and so a priority one call, obviously, everybody's, you've got to go. And and so where would this fall? You know, if, if there's a break and enter, obviously, that's going to be higher. So the question is, again, more around expectations and asks. If, if the government and the expectation from the public is that the police are going to be the respondents to those type of calls to check passports, well, the resources that would need to be pumped into policing to make that even a reasonable ask are substantial. All right, that's a lot then. So are you kind of apprehensive about what you're going to hear next week? You know, we've things have been for everybody, and this is not police-centric, you know, uh, I'm sure for you. For everybody in the province, it's just been such a tumultuous, I will say, uh, year and a half, and, and mask mandates coming in and out. And everybody's been, you know, I would say um, people have been uh, adapting to it incredibly well. And just, you know, I, I think that's, been fantastic and our officers are no different so a little bit of wait and see you know the the uh the traveling um audits got rolled back to just a few locations and it was mostly education based um and i think that worked out well so i guess what i'm hoping and what we're pushing for is is two things one is additional resources generally but also just to that there be a a bit of a more nuanced conversation uh, about what this may look like. All right, Rob, thanks so much for your time this morning. Thank you, Simi. Well, the school year is now pretty much right around the corner, right? Just days away from getting underway. People heading back to school, people heading back to work, which means it's going to be a lot busier on our roads. I asked you earlier whether you think, as I do, that, I don't know, people's driving etiquette, I don't know, skills have deteriorated because what I see out there in the last couple of weeks has been way worse than what I saw prior to the pandemic. People texting, people on their phones, people just distracted, just people not using their signal, like you name it. And you know what? I would have to say that the emails that I got from people say that they agree on this. Uh, Linda wrote me to say, driving skills absolutely falling into the use it or lose it category, she said. Blinkers have become completely optional, Linda says. Really bugs me. I say to myself daily, use your blinker so I know where you're going. And she said, yesterday, 
On her way to work, and this is the kicker, she saw a guy using both hands to eat a bowl of food with a utensil while driving, like the vehicle was in motion. She could not believe it. And the worst part, he was in a logoed pickup truck. Like it was the name of a company on the side of the pickup truck. That's craziness. George agrees too, said it comes down to lack of enforcement for driving violations of all kinds. Okay, I would agree that maybe we're not enforcing this stuff enough. Uh, Rick says what drives me crazy, he said, is the amount of people I see doing illegal U-turns everywhere. He said, main streets, school zones, crosswalks, drivers with kids in the car, older drivers. He said, you name it. And he's never seen anybody pulled over for that either. So yeah, there's some driving frustration out there. Joining us now to talk more about this is Sean Pettipau, who's BCAA's Director of Community Engagement. Good morning, Sean. Good morning. Would you say there is a concern for drivers out there about what the next week is going to be like? (laughs) Absolutely. I, I think British Columbians are concerned that school zones could be more frenzied than ever, and, and they're pretty frenzied every year. Yeah, that is true. So what did your survey tell you? Our survey told us that British Columbians are concerned that school zones are going to be more chaotic or going to be more dangerous because in addition to new drop-off and pickup routines and people just getting back into the groove of, of dropping their children on off, there's also concerns of, of COVID and that weighs heavily on, on people's minds. And when you're mentally focused somewhere else, you're probably not driving to the best of your ability. So you think people are distracted. There's concerns about people being too distracted. Absolutely. When you're thinking about your concerns, if you're thinking about, you know, I I really need to meet this deadline or I've got to get back home for a meeting or I need to drop my child off on time, you're not focused on driving. And, you know, some people would call that multitasking. But in reality, there's no such thing as multitasking when you're behind the wheel. You're actually driving distracted, which is a danger and, and puts other people's in danger. Are people admitting to it or are they saying that they're worried about other people being more distracted? I, I think both. In past surveys that we've done, uh, you know, most people say, oh, I'm, I'm a safe driver. And that's like 90 percent of people. But then when you probe a little bit further, they'll say, oh, well, I, I do this while I drive, like I'll, exactly. I'll eat my sandwich or I'll, right? I'll fiddle with knobs and, and try and figure out my, my GPS. When in reality, if you're doing anything other than the physical act of driving, you're not multitasking, you're actually driving distracted, which is dangerous. Right. And so I also noticed that it said that According to your surveys, prior to the pandemic, 68% of people said they had already witnessed distracted driving, dangerous distracted driving in school zones. That's a lot. We're seeing all kinds of things in school zones. You know, we, we talk to British Columbians every year around this time and ask them what, what they're seeing, uh, what they saw last year. You know, you know, 75% of you, that's three out of four people have witnessed speeding alone in a school zone. I mean, you need to slow down. Speed limits are 30 in school zones. And it's not just about slowing down. It's about paying attention to all those things that are around you. A, a child could dart out between two cars. And if you're not paying attention, that could lead to disastrous consequences. So what are people seeing? I know you've asked them this as well, about what kind of poor driving are they seeing in school zones in particular? Uh, Anything from speeding to aggressive driving, uh, parents not following the the rules of the pickup and drop off and and encouraging their children to to jump out of the car and run across the street, Um, you know, pulling away from the curb without checking for mirrors, just driving while distracted, Uh, all of those things. And in reality, it all comes down to you know, people are in a rush, they're doing multiple things, and they're trying to find shortcuts. And we just want to encourage drivers, just 
follow the rules of the road, take it easy, give yourself some extra time and get through it safe because it's better for all of us. So is that what you're hoping to do is just by talking about it today and getting out there that just put that like on top of people's minds for next week? Tuesday's going to be a a different day. All of a sudden, the roads are going to be more congested. There's going to be more school buses on the road. There will be children everywhere. So Tuesday, as you head out the door, whether you're a parent dropping off your child or you're commuting to the office or wherever you're going, just make sure that you're a little more cautious. You're, you're, You're watching the entire environment in front of you where you're driving. Slow down in school zones and give yourself some extra time. All good advice. Sean, thank you very much for that. Thanks so much for having me. That is Sean Pettipa, the Director of Community Engagement for BCAA. They've got a survey out that says that you know parents are concerned. Uh, they said about half of those surveyed, 50%, say they believe that parents are going to be more distracted than usual next week because it is back to school and that they're going to have to adjust to different work schedules and arrangements. And a lot of parents have been working remotely, so maybe it's going to be just a little bit more you know chaotic for them. And if half the people say they're worried about that, you can bet that that is definitely going to be the case, right? So it is um, a difficult time of year on the roads, particularly in school zones. You're going to need to pay closer attention to that next week. Even before the pandemic, BCAA had asked people, well, what kind of bad behavior do you see in school zones? And get this, 75% of the people said that they witness speeding in a school zone. 59% say they have seen aggressive driving in a school zone. And 68% said that they have seen people slash parents, drivers, not stopping at marked crosswalks. That's a bad one in a school zone. Like, that's just really a bad one in a school zone. Speeding, they're all bad ones in a school zone. But still, you're going to have to pay attention to that. Maybe give yourself some extra time. But it's going to be busy next week. On top of that... We know we're going to be getting information about vaccine passports. That's coming on Tuesday. So it is gearing up to be just a very busy week overall. And of course, we will be here for you.